0: We were always very cognizant of the fact that real people died like this was not entertainment and i think that's one of the reasons fincher was down to do this because he was like look he's like seven is a movie this is a film there is an ethical responsibility to be honest about what the facts of the case were
1: welcome to script apart a podcast about the first draft secrets of great movies Each episode, we speak to a brilliant screenwriter who's kindly dug out their initial screenplay for what became a beloved movie, discussing what changed, what didn't, and why, from first draft to the big screen. This week we're joined by the excellent James Vanderbilt, writer of the 2007 David Fincher directed thriller Zodiac. Zodiac was a labor of love for James, who you might also know for his work on two Spider-Man movies. James' fascination with the notorious serial killer, perhaps the most infamous in American history, stretches back to his teenage years. His eventual screenplay was based on a non-fiction book by Robert Graysmith. Graysmith was a cartoonist working at the San Francisco Chronicle, when a string of gruesome killings across the Bay Area by one unknown assailant, left the region in a state of panic and paranoia. The Killer, known as The Zodiac, wrote cryptic letters to Graysmith's paper that perplexed authorities, and sent Graysmith on a personal mission to uncover the killer's identity. James' film told the story of Graysmith's ultimately unsuccessful search for the truth. If you're wondering how you write a satisfying thriller in which the killer gets away, well, James did too. I chatted to him at home in LA to hear about the conventions he had to break to make this incredible movie the dizzying amount of research that he and Fincher undertook to make sure they were telling the victim's stories responsibly, and whether or not he'd ever consider making a sequel of sorts about the notorious 1970s killer, The Son of Sam. You're listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demeck. Hey James, welcome to Script Apart. How are you today?
0: I'm doing great, sir. Thank you for having me.
1: Great. Well, it's a pleasure to have you, and I am so excited to talk about Zodiac with you, which is a movie that you must have known going in uh, would involve breaking so many traditional Hollywood storytelling conventions. Um, So it's got the form of a procedural movie, but of course, detective movies usually end with the bad guy getting caught. Um, The Zodiac killer was never apprehended in real life, you must have known going into this project that to tell this story accurately and without sensationalism, you'd have no big moment of resolution in the third act, no ending where the good guy saves the day um, so let's start off with that. How daunting was it approaching this project with uh yeah that that, that problem to solve in the final third
0: um i don't it was i think daunting is probably not the the way I would say it because I sort of, I always knew how I wanted it to end. Um, but that was really sort of the big question when I, when I pitched it, because I, I I did it with a, a company called Phoenix Pictures, which was run by Mike Medavoy. And I went in and I said, I, we'd done a movie together already. And I went in and I said, I wanted to do this. It was based on this book. And that was his one question as he sort of said, you know, well, they never caught the guy. Like, how do you, you know? And so I pitched him, uh, the scene at the end of the movie where Graysmith walks into the hardware store and sees um, uh, Lee Allen in real life in the original script, he had a pseudonym um, and is able to walk away. Cause I always sort of saw the movie as being really about this guy's obsession and it's swallowing him. And the happy ending is that he's able to disconnect from it at the end. So I sort of felt like, I knew that I had an an emotional ending, you know, and the arc of that was sort of the spine that I kind of hung the thing on. And, um, but there was sort of no, you know, the no way around the fact that and I didn't want to take away around the fact that the Zodiac was never caught. And I think, um, the 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 idea for the movie had, before I came onto it had the book had been optioned a bunch of times by a bunch of different places, and I'd heard stories about how there were scripts where they actually catch him in the end, or they, you know, what I mean, like all of, you know, all of the sort of the ridiculous Hollywood endings that people had tried to graft onto it and hadn't worked. Um, uh, you know, you sort of heard about. So by the time the rights sort of popped up again, there were a few different people going after it, and. Uh, I wrote a letter to Robert Graysmith and I said, I can't guarantee you I can get this movie made, but I can guarantee you that it will be an R-rated movie, It will, which the, there was a PG version for a while. It'll be an R-rated movie. It'll be period. There'd been a non-period version, if you can imagine that, um, and that, that the Zodiac Killer won't get caught at the end.
1: Can you tell me a little bit about your personal relationship with the story? So, I, I know you were born in 1975, so you grew up in a post-Zodiac America. Um, I know you were 15 when you read the Robert Graysmith book that became the inspiration for the film, but had the fear and paranoia stoked by this serial killer been something that you'd picked up on at all as a kid growing up in the wake of those murders?
0: Well, I, for me, actually, a lot of people don't remember this, but in the, I think it was late 80s, early 90s, there was actually a copycat uh, around New York City. Um, and I grew up in Connecticut. So I think that's probably where I sort of first heard about it. Um, and then I was, I wanted to be a, uh, I wanted to be a writer and I was trying to write my first book when I was like 14 years old. And, uh, it was about a serial killer, you know, because dark brooding emo, 14 year old me. Um, (laughs) and, and so I was doing research and actually going to, you know, this is pre-internet. So going to libraries and checking out books. And that's actually when I found Robert's book for the first time. Um, so I really did, I think, learn most of, about it through reading Robert's, Robert's book.
1: What was it that captivated you so greatly about Robert's book and what the Zodiac represented? There's, I mean, it, it, it's a story about like, the darkness that humans are capable of. Um, it, there's also like the mystery of not knowing who the person was and what drove their monstrous behaviour. Um, have you ever kind of worked out what it was that originally spoke to you about the story?
0: I mean, I think it was more the mystery of it, really, because and the puzzles, Um, I sort of loved the idea of the ciphers and the, you know, like love is the wrong way to put it. Obviously, it's a terrible thing. But that's the thing that kind of fascinated me was that this killer was kind of taunting the police and 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 really branding himself in a weird way. Almost sort of acting as his own hype man. Uh, and I, and I also, when you read Robert's book, it's very much a mystery book with clues and this and that and blind alleys and it just the way it was written, you know, to be perfectly honest, I think was also a big part of it. And then just the fact that it was, you know, a Cartoonist in the middle of all of this, you know. It's sort of when you read true crime books, it's usually about the cops and the, or you know, you read Helter Skelter and the lawyers and Manson and all that stuff. And this is this is a guy who's so out of his lane; it's ridiculous. And yet, because the killerist is sending you know visual imagery and iconography, it's actually weirdly in his lane. So that I think sort of was the thing that made it stay with me. You know, as I got older and and. And moved to, to LA and, and wanted to try and be a screenwriter.
1: It really came alive to me when I was reading this this first draft about how much character of Robert mirrors the the Zodiac in, I mean, there's some amazing themes of like obsession that, as you say, run through the movie. The Zodiac killer, of course, is a compulsive monster who criminal science would suggest. Commits his crimes to, you know, placate some uncontrollable urge within him. Jake Gillenhall and Robert Downey Jr.'s characters in the film are just as obsessive to the detriment of their health, to the detriment of their relationships. I was wondering, sort of, at what point you realized that there was a film here that was more than a murder mystery. It, there was something about obsession you could explore.
0: I, you know, it's so interesting. And going back and I read this, dra- I mean, I haven't read this draft in 15 years. So it was, it was such a, um, I was surprised how much was there to be perfectly honest. Mm-hmm. Like, like, and the obsession thing was there from the jump. Like, really, I. I um, but I, I, remember knowing that that was kind of what it was about. But I don't think I realized how much it was about that in a weird way. I'm sort of, as a writer, I'm somebody who kind of finds theme as I go, as opposed to saying, like I didn't set out and say, I'm going, I want to make a movie about obsession. Now what subjects could fit the exploration of that theme? It's more, I think, and I'm probably a very obsessive person. So I was sort of drawn to a story about an obsessive person and could kind of relate to that idea of what it's like to go down the rabbit hole of something. Um, And, and so I think that's, that's what attracted me to Graysmith as a character. Cause I went, Oh, I, I can see how someone would do that. You know what I mean? It's, I can see how this, this thing that initially seems to be a virtue uh, turns out to be a flaw. You know, it is, it is for him. Uh, it is both a feature and a bug, you know, that he is like that way. And then when I met him, cause I met him and talked to him a bunch before I wrote this draft, you could see that in him. You know what I mean? You could see that he had that, so the way we would talk about anything, the way we would talk about um, uh, uh, where he lived, what he did that day, he just had a very meticulous, kind of obsessive, specific, particular um, personality. And I think I just sort of drove towards that.
1: There are some interesting parallels as well in the way that notoriety and fame function as themes in this film. Um, you've talked before about how Zodiac is as famous for the letters he wrote as the people he killed. Uh, so here is a guy who sought a level of fame and attention with these killings. That was a, dim- a dimension of what he did. Um, now, with the with some of the characters in his pursuit, uh, Gray Smith included, I think, to an extent. You're invited to wonder how much of your pursuit of this killer is based on the fame and attention it will bring to you, the spotlight it will bring to your career,
0: right? It's interesting, you know. I Robert really is. I didn't get that from him as much. And it's interesting that that you read that because I always sort of felt like he was the one guy who wasn't cognizant of the stakes of the situation he was in. I mean, it's almost almost, um, you know, uh, uh, gleefully unaware of the fact that this is a. Could bring him fame and fortune. B could be incredibly dangerous. I mean, he was a he was a it was a man trying at one point. We don't do as much of this in the movie, but in real life, it happened. Is he would follow Lee Allen around throughout the day, and he drove an orange VW Rabbit. He drove a car that you would notice from a mile away, and he had his kids with him. So it's like it's sort of like, what are you doing? You know, we would sort of talk to him and go like. And he would go, Oh, I just didn't really think about it that way. So I I think that one of the things I love about him is he is, and we say it in the movie, and I I do believe it's in the original draft, but it's that he is this sort of boy scout. Like he is a, he is doing it for, because it should be done, because he is an obsessive personality, but yeah, he's a bad guy and bad guys should be caught because they're bad guys, right? It's a world of bad guys and good guys. And it's, everyone else is more, Nuanced about it, you know. You know, Paul Avery is is about you know all the stuff he can write, and this is a great story. And as long as the story is great, I'll write about it. And then when the story is not great, we move on, you know. And and Toski understands that it could affect his career and and screw him up that way. Or so everybody's kind of trying to. I think Downey says it in the movie: is what's in it for you? Everyone's trying to get something out of it, you know. And we don't answer the question in that scene. Um, and that was very much a Fincher thing. Fincher was great about sort of knocking the melodrama out of the... Because there's stuff in the original script that I read now and I go, Ooh, you know, I, I cringe a little bit too. And Fincher was so great about going, we don't need to get to the melodramatic part of this. We just need to stay with the factual part of it and the and the character stuff will come out of the work they're doing.
1: Um, you mentioned years ago about how... David Fincher came on board and he made it clear to you that he wasn't interested in making a serial killer movie because he had already done that with seven. He was interested in making a newspaper film. Can you explain what you meant by that phrase?
0: He, he was very much, a you know, he loved the, the, the chronicle part of it and the press part of it and how the, the media, and the killers sort of fed off each other and not in a like, like wanting to make a statement way, but just in the way of, you know, he, he kind of came into it with this, this view, which I believe is correct, which is if the Zodiac hadn't written to the paper and hadn't, Literally branded himself. And and David was someone who said, Look, I I, I shoot TV commercials. I know how to brand. I, I shoot Nike commercials. Like, I, I know exactly what that is. And that's what this guy did. And that's why we're still talking about him. That's why we're making him famous. And that's why, you know, when we were doing some of the rewrites, you know, uh, we wrote that scene that takes place on Paul house, houseboat where he says to Jake Gillenall, he says, This guy killed like eight people. 10 years ago, more people die every year on the Bay Area commute than this guy ever killed. You know, he's not that important. What makes him important and fascinating is the way he branded himself. Um, and and I think David really, that's the thing that made him go, oh, I'll go back into this territory because I was convinced, you know, we were never going to get David Fincher. You know, we were, we we sent it to him because, of course, you send a serial killer movie to David Fincher, but he's not going to say yes, he's done it. Um and then I subsequently learned after we sent it to him that he grew up in the Bay area and was one of those kids on one of those buses that was followed by helicopters. Oh, so he had oh, a, interesting. a pretty personal connection to the, he always talked about the Zodiac mm-hmm. was the first time he realized there was evil in the world was, was when that was going on. Cause he was that age.
1: Yeah. Wow. Um, he was
0: like seven or eight when that happened. So, yeah.
1: But before you got to the point of having, um, of having David on board, you, as you mentioned, you had to get the rights. Am I right in thinking that the rights were, at that point, owned by Disney, and you had to require the rights from them?
0: So Disney had had the rights for years. I think it was a producer named Ricardo Mestres had it, and um, a great writer named Shane Salerno ha- had been working on it. And I never read Shane's drafts or anything like that. I just knew I loved the book. And uh, I was working with Phoenix Pictures, and there was a producer there named Brad Fisher. And when you go around... Uh, and, and when you break into Hollywood, and you go around, you do sort of general meetings as a writer. They always sort of ask you if you could do, what's your dream project? What's the thing you want? And I would always say this. Um, and so Brad knew that. And so he called me one when he said, guess what? The rights are for Zodiac are available. Um, and so and and that's when I wrote the sort of letter to Robert Graysmith. But we were comp- I remember we were competing with Goldie Hawn's company, pre- production company for them. So it was so many different in- people were interested in the story. Um uh and and yes so but i mean you know of course disney's not going to make a movie you know what i mean it's sort of i got very lucky that disney had the rights for so long and and didn't make a movie that i was able to sort of swoop in there
1: (laughs) and can you tell me a little bit about when david first came on presumably you were already such a fan because he had such a great track record of films what were some of your early conversations about the project
0: He was very much, I mean, he read the draft that you read. So that's the the draft he read to sign on. And I remember him being very much about, we need to do a lot of, we, first of all, he said, I didn't think it was the first thing he said, because I can't remember our first meeting, but over the course of our first few meetings, it became really apparent that he wanted to use the real names, right, because the names in this script are the same names that Robert used in the book. No one had ever actually written down in a book the name Arthur Lee Allen as a Zodiac suspect. And so he said, I really want to use everyone's real name, Um, to which we sort of went, can you do that? And he's like, well, if we can't do that, I'm not doing the movie. Hmm. So then it became, if we're going to use their real name, and by the way, the legal department had a heart attack, right, Um, (laughs) because you're kind of accusing someone of being a serial killer. Now Lee Allen had passed away. So there was, it was less of an issue than it would have been if he had still been alive. But um, he wanted to use the real names. He wanted us to research it like within an inch of its life, like to talk to every single, we ended up talking to, I think every, Every living detective who worked on the case, we talked to every surviving victim, um, which was Mike Mageau and Brian Hartnell, who was the guy at the lake. Um, And Mike is the guy in the car in the beginning of the movie. We spoke to uh, family members of certain suspects. We spoke to, I mean, it it was it was an insane amount of read and he was there for all of it. And it was to it was to rattle test everything. It was to sort of go, okay. Did it really happen this way? Like, let's make sure. Like, there is an the opening sequence in this in the the first draft is there's this sort of car chase thing which Robert had written and and believed based on things he read. And the more we kind of read the police reports and looked at that stuff, we went, I don't know if it happened that way. I think they actually just drove to that parking lot. And so that part of it fell out because we did the research, right? Um, So he was very much about he sort of said let's just put the script aside don't worry about notes on the script let's just do our own research and investigation and see how much of what's in here kind of passes that test um and so it was a really organic process because it wasn't you know it was in my recollection it wasn't us having different opinion you know notes and no i know i like this but i don't like that it was really us just figuring out what happened and then figuring out the best way to dramatize it. And, and, and really was always sort of a real estate issue too. It was because I had always, I write long and this draft is 160 pages and I was terrified that it was 160 pages. And I was trying even because obviously screenplays, uh, if anyone who's listening doesn't know, usually feature screenplays are not more than 120 pages. Um, And I had had to cram this down. I actually, um, had cut stuff from this draft that ended up in the final movie, <laughs> like um, the whole Melvin Belli sequence where they called it the Jim Dunbar show with Brian Cox. I had actually written in the first draft and taken out because it was too long. And then David read this and signed on. And as we were going through this, we were sort of talking about the sequence of events. I said, "You know, I wrote a whole sequence about Melvin Belli and the Zodiac calling in." He goes, "You did? Send it. Can you send it to me?" I said, of course, I sent it to him. He goes, "Oh, this is going in the movie. Like this is." Uh. <laughs> so we were adding, like, and it was it was just about getting it getting it right, and also what's the most interesting way we can spend our time. Um, and I think another example of that was I was very when I wrote this draft, I was very. Into the idea that you don't see Lee Allen till the very end of the movie when Jake walks into that store. Yeah. Um, And so I built the script kind of around not doing that. And at a certain point in time, David went, Well, what if we throw that out? What if we could see him? Like, what would we do? Like, because I was always sort of, I was like, Well, if there's so many suspects, if we only see one suspect, it's going to tip that it's him. He goes, Don't worry about that. What would we do? And I said, Well, we have a whole scene where Toski talks about interviewing him. We could see the interview, um, and he's like, "Okay, go write a version of that." And I did, and I said, "You know." And also, they searched his, you know, they searched his trailer, and they found all this crazy shit in his trailer. And they were like, "Okay, go write a version of that, and and let's see if those things belong in the movie." So it was really, it was this amazing kind of exploration, you know. And for me, also like a such a learning experience too, because I'd never been on a movie. From beginning to end, which is is rare in Hollywood that you get a single screenwriter who who soup to nuts does the whole thing. I had started movies and then been rewritten and those movies gotten made, and I'd been the guy coming in at the end of movies, but I never developed all the way from first draft coming up within my own you know in my own uh, you know home office to going to the premiere and no no one else has ever sort of touched it so learning how to work with a director and learning how to kind of rattle test all of this um, was was such an experience. And then the, sort of the last thing I'll say is we, because of the legal issues of it, it we had to basically source every double source everything for Warner Brothers. So I actually had a—I don't know where it is. I wish I did. I had an annotated screenplay where every fact and line I actually had to cite. Like it, would, it looked like a like a thesis paper, you know, um, whether it be from first-hand accounts or police reports or all of that stuff. So he was—he was very much about just let's figure out if we can do it this way, and if we can figure out a way to do it that way, I'll make the movie, and if we can't. No harm, no foul.
1: And was it just the legal issue that was like driving that sense of responsibility that we have to rattle test everything? We have to make sure that it's accurate. Or was there sort of like an ethical urge as well to kind of put a journalistic streak into the film? Because, yeah, as you mentioned at the beginning, it's a film that in the wrong hands, you can very easily imagine losing its impartiality.
0: Absolutely, yeah. And David was really, really great about the impartiality. No, it was absolutely driven by the ethical sense of it as well. You know, we were always very cognizant of the fact that real people died. Like, this was not entertainment. And I think that's one of the reasons, you know, Fincher was down to do this, because he was like, look, I remember he once said, he was like, he's like, Seven is a movie. This is a film. This is... Seven, it's like, holy shit, I can't believe they're doing all this violent stuff. Nothing about the violence in this movie should be fun. Nothing about it should be, you know, it, it should be truly ho- horrifying in its, in, in how mundane it is. Um, so we all were always conscious of the fact that th- these were real people and we wanted to do right. And my biggest fear was that we would do it. It would come out and we would get, some of it wrong and not in terms of who the killer was because that was the other piece of impartiality we were really you know and and david talked a lot about this one of jfk is one of my favorite movies i just think it's a, a brilliant piece of filmmaking and and this was not this is not jfk this is specifically jfk is a movie designed to Prove to this audience a thesis. This is the opposite of that. This is not a movie designed to prove to you that Arthur Lee Allen is the Zodiac Killer. It's a movie designed to tell you what the journey, the emotional journey of this character is, give you all of that information and let you make your own Decree. And that drove some people crazy because we end the movie with a Chiron that the, 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 the handwriting and the fingerprints didn't match <laughs> and the DNA didn't match, right? Yeah. So it's like, it feels like a rug pull. And I remember the studio being like, do you have to put that, chi- do we have to tell them that at the end? And it's like, yeah, you have to because it's, there is an ethical responsibility to be honest about what the facts of the case were. Um, so, so yes, certainly it was all about sort of making sure we got that right.
1: Which is why I suppose it must have been so important to give Robert's character like the emotional payoff. Although there's not like conclusivity to the actual sort of identity of who this killer was, there's real firm conclusivity to. I don't actually know if conclusivity is a word, but I'm going to run with it.
0: <laughs> well, it is now. It's fine. It it we're good. Now.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, we really sort of like his arc really lands, and his he ends the film in in a good way.
0: No, my I, I always I. I'm a huge fan of William Goldman, uh, the late writer who wrote Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And he wrote one of the great screenwriting books of all time um, uh, uh, and uh, adventures in the screen trade. And he would talk about, um, having a fastball as a writer, like on different, like knowing that I have a fastball that I can use at a certain time and that giving them confidence. And I always felt like that emotional journey and ending was my fastball. I always sort of felt confident that that scene in the hardware store was going to work. And if that scene worked, the movie worked because at that point in time, you just wanted him to get on with his life.
1: Yeah. Well, let's dive into the script a little bit, James. So we fade in on an American flag fluttering in the breeze It's twilight. The sun is giving way to a crisp northern Californian summer evening. It's July 4th, 1969. Summer of love. Fireworks streak into the sky. Kids in backyards send up bottle rockets. Burgers on grills. Welcome to suburbia. The American dream. Was this opening image just place setting or did you consider the story of the Zodiac to be a story about America? Were you trying to convey that this was fundamentally in some way like an American story?
0: I think it was it was about sort of it, not, not just being an American story, but being this sort of this sort of suburban perfection that we all kind of sometimes buy into the idea of. And yet beneath that, there's something not right and something evil and something scary. It's sort of I, I keep, you know, it's always weird to hear my stuff read. <laughs> um uh, uh but you know there's a, like the opening of blue velvet there's that sort of wonderful shot of these beautiful lawns and yeah. it's so sort of very picturesque and then you you kind of crane down and you see all the insects beneath it it was kind of that i think i think that idea of of not only is this going to be shattered but this is a little bit of a lie that everything is sort of perfect in the summer of love
1: So the opening scene in this first draft is fundamentally the same one that we see in the finished movie, but you take a really different approach to the material. Um, So here you have a bronze Corvair rattles down the street. At the wheel is Darlene, 22, clad in a white and blue jumpsuit. Long fake eyelashes and braces, which make her out to be more like 17. She pulls up in front of the house and honks. Mike races out, tall and skinny at 19 face lit up with a textbook crush on darlene he gets in the car breathless now in in the movie darlene tells mike at this point that she's starving and begs him to go get food with her but when they approach a diner darlene drives on telling mike it's too crowded and instead they go to like this make-out point where there's a car that silently drives behind them and they're left to wonder was that car at the drive-in is it following us in this draft, you actually see that car follow them, um, and the suspense is a lot more pronounced, turning it into, well, pretty much a car chase as they try to shake this guy. They slow down, expecting the car to overtake them. It slows down with them. They then speed up, trying to escape this mysterious vehicle that's stalking them. Um, and you write the Corvair's engine is straining 62 miles per hour, 63, 64. The Corvair's interior lights up as their pursuer switches to high beams. Darlene is terrified. Honking the horn, tears in her eyes, go away, she screams. The headlights don't go anywhere. So the car ends up hitting a log and spinning out. The engine uh, splutters and dies. They're trapped. The man in this vehicle that's been following them gets out and approaches them. So, can you tell me why you decided to pull back on the suspense and go for something more subtle? in the final film.
0: Yeah. No. Well, I mean, the reason it, it came out, we, that was really based on what Robert had written in the book and in sort of his research. And then as we sort of talked to people and we talked to Mike Mugeot, who is who was the guy in the car, obviously, he did not remember a sort of a car chase portion of it, right? And so we kind of went... When we would get conflicting reports and conflicting, we would have to sort of make a judgment call in terms of what felt... Correct. And we knew they had been to Big Owls before and gotten a burger and stuff. And I hadn't put that into the into the, the scene just because it sort of felt extraneous. But then it was sort of like, well, if, let's if we start with them already in the car and then they go, he comes out and they go get a burger. And in our research, Mike had thought he had seen the car back then. Um, that's why all of that sort of fell out of there. And, and really, the, the 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 thing that we sort of discovered is we think they had gone there to to make out to park you know what I mean? To, to, and it was sort of a typical makeout point type of place. Um, so that's kind of why that whole sort of thing kind of fell out and it became more just about that menacing car.
1: There's a line a minute later. That's really interesting. So you say this figure is approaching the vehicle. This is no cop, a clink of metal as the gun taps the window frame. Mike stares at it confused. This will not be stylized. This will not be cool. This is what real bullets from a real gun can do. The man pulls the trigger. Mike's blood and teeth explode onto the dashboard. So yeah, that in, that's so interesting about like you spell out, this is not a film where the violence will be stylized.
0: I wrote this, the, the, the first draft of it, I think probably t- was writing it in 2003, maybe 2004. And it was, it was post seven, you know, seven had come out and there was this whole explosion of stylized serial killer movies. There was, you know, where, you know, there was Taking Lives and there was all of these movies, Ethan Hawke in many of them, um, where it was a sort of a whodunit serial killer, what trap could be more violent than the next. And I sort of just felt like right up front, we should say that. Also, it's, it is also bullshit showing off writing, right? It is, <laughs> it is, it is, it is, it is, hey, here's my voice as a writer, check this out. Like, um, which I don't think is a bad thing. You know what I mean? As I, I, I sort of come up reading Shane Black and, and a bunch of those types of guys who would sort of really take, and William Goldman does it too, really sort of take control in the description of how you're going to, um, process this movie, not just in not trying to direct the director, but trying to direct the reader in terms of where to pay attention, what to see. That's the clink on the glass. That's the sort of pausing and addressing. Stephen King does it. He addresses you, hey, dear reader, this is X, this is Y. So that was me trying trying those pants on for size a little
1: bit. We then meet Robert Graysmith, who you introduce as standing in his robe at his sink, brushing his teeth, early thirties, dark hair and handsome. Next to him, his youngest, Brad, brushes his teeth as well, mimicking his father's movements. Um, so you spent a lot of time with Robert, right, James? I- I'm curious to know if, because uh, he's so endearing and likable and you really buy into his quest in the finished film, was there much exaggeration or creative license needed to turn the real life Graysmith into a protagonist that you want to root for as you watch the film?
0: No, I mean if anything we we had to go the other way and, and sort of tone him down a little bit because he is sort of this sweet, goofy, obsessive guy and so it was stuff like we can't we shouldn't show him following the zodiac killer with his kids. <laughs> you know what I mean? So so no, and I just I got I think we got really lucky with him because he is so over the top and I think he's less so in this first draft. I think he's more sort of Mr. Protagonist and less quirky. And as we spent more time with him, we were like, oh, we have to bring in more of those quirks and those kind of um, things. But I think this first moment, I, I, I haven't watched the movie in a while, I think this first moment is in the movie. I think this actually, with the brushing the teeth and it was swallowed it and it was minty. Yeah. Uh, and I was shocked it was in the I, I had not remembered that that had been in the whole time. <laughs> um, but yeah.
1: The real life Robert obviously had quite a clear arc to play around with. So he starts as a family man. And as you say, like a a cartoonist, he's sidelined at his work and through his own wits and zero training, he's not a cop. He manages to solve these riddles that kind of elude, you know, the, the US's best detectives and all that sort of thing. So that was already baked into the story. And then from there he goes on this journey where the closer he gets to the zodiac, the more danger he puts his family in, and the more unhinged he himself becomes. So it sounds like there was something inherently cinematic about his story. Was that was that kind of part of what attracted you to this to the story in the first place?
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that, that it just it felt like it was it it you know, the tragedy of, you know, there's a little bit of a Greek tragedy to that You know, the guy who loses his family and his wife for, for doing the quote unquote right thing um, was was very attractive. And then the more time we sort of spent with him, you know, the more time you sort of you sort of realize like he yeah, he wishes he didn't get divorced and he wishes that hadn't happened. But he doesn't regret it. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like you could see him making the exact same mistakes again immediately. If the, you know, so it's, it was, you know, it was just something, there's something sort of wonderfully like, um, I'm going to use a big word to sound smart here, quixotic about him. Like, you know what I mean? That he just, he's not going to learn. He's not going to, you know, and there's just, I think that's such always an interesting character who's just going to do the right thing because it's the right thing.
1: And of course, alongside Robert for so much of the film, we're going to have Avery. Um, I'm really interested to know, as quite a lot of the comic relief comes from that character, um, was the real life Avery as funny? Uh, or did you add a dash of humour to that character to sort of lend some lightness to the film? Or, or was that something that um, Robert Downey Jr. brought to the role?
0: I, I mean, look, I think it's a combination of all of it, really. it's He had passed away by the time he'd started writing, so I never got to speak to the real Paul Avery. Um, but everyone sort of described him that way. And everyone sort of, he was he was sort of a known raconteur and popular guy. And I think the one thing, I think the biggest difference in this, dra- maybe I'm skipping ahead, but the biggest difference, I think in this draft from the final movie is actually how central Robert is to the story in this draft. And that was me really trying to just cram this thing into a makeable Hollywood structure and, um, in this draft, he and Avery are already friends. And in this draft, he and Toski start talking earlier in the story. Um, and f- when Fincher came in, he really gave me permission to not worry about trying to get the gang together. And he, and he sort of said, Look, if if Graysmith and Toski don't meet till halfway through the movie, I'm fine with it. And I went. And that was like a light bulb for me. I went, Oh shit, I can do that. Like that's okay. <laughs> you can do that in the Hollywood movie. So, so So, yeah, but Avery was always just kind of this... And that's the other piece of it, too, was as Robert became quirkier in his sort of the way we were writing him and the way I was writing him, Avery became more of a comment on... This guy being sort of out there and silly. And you know, Avery was the cool kid and Robert was the nerd. And then <laughs> the story goes, oh, the the cool kid and the nerds start working together because, you know, uh uh because the nerds got skilled. Uh so yeah, but I mean, listen, the other thing is Robert Downey Jr. is such a force of nature, and yeah. I would say the quickest wit I've ever met. Um, and he came into this movie um almost unhirable because of because of his past legal troubles and stuff and he had i think he had done kiss kiss bang bang the year before but it hadn't come out yet Um, and i mean literally like there was the movie studio wasn't sure they could insure him Um, and he was clean sober and every all of that stuff was behind him already but he was just having trouble getting work because of that reputation and um and fincher i remember the day fincher suggested him i said oh that's a great ideas because i always loved his his stuff and i remember him you know at one point you know i was standing outside with brad fisher in the days uh, of yore when i smoked cigarettes um brad Fisher and i were standing outside with downey smoking a cigarette and he was like hey thank you guys for taking a chance on me like he he was so and and he just lit up the whole fucking movie like he's so he just he's such a great breath of fun I think in the, in the film. So a a lot of that's downy as well. Yeah. So good. But not a lot of, not a lot of David Fincher movies. There is not a lot of improvisation.
1: So much of this movie is, is process. So it's the process of cracking the Zodiac's riddles, the process of like the Zodiac's kills, the process of deciding whether it's right ethically to give into this killer's demands by giving him a platform in the newspaper, the process of the media, There's a fascinating scene uh, that you actually touched on at the beginning as this scene that kind of was in the first draft. It's here in this draft that we're reading. It came out and then came back in. So the scene with Melvin Belly and this live TV interview where there's this call that we can't work out. Is it the Zodiac? Is it not? Narratively, it doesn't really push the movie forward, but the scene is so revealing about the way that the Zodiac's presence in like the American psyche impacted things. It's bringing all these cranks out of the woodwork. Can you tell me about this sequence and like why ultimately you decided, or it sounds like David was the one who really pushed for it. Why was it that you, you both decided this has to actually be in there? It really tells us something.
0: Well, I, I always loved the scene and that's why in my sort of, I always call it the pre-first draft, the one that nobody sees but me. That's why I <laughs> had it in there because I just always, I, I thought it was so, just dynamic too. I mean, no one had, you know, it, 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 this was an age, be- this sort of was an age before, you know, people calling into radio shows and saying, I'm going to kill myself or I'm going to kill. Like, this was all such new territory and weirdly, you know, not new technology, but like a live morning show hadn't been around for more than a couple decades at that point. We're in this late 60s. So it just seems fascinating. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, like. Yeah. In the- as a writer, sometimes you just like, well, I got I to gotta try that. I got to write it down, and if it works, great, and if it doesn't, and so I think it was that kind of thing. And then it was for me um, an assessment of, well, this doesn't really get us anywhere. Like, this doesn't do anything for us other than you know, eat ten pages. Really interesting, but it eats ten pages of a script that is already way, way, way too long. And so I took it out. And this was at a point where I wanted to just get people to read it and not throw it across the room when they look at the paper. <laughs> at it. And it felt like the thing that could, could eat most easily go. And then when David came in and read it and, and it fit more into that idea that we were making a process movie, kind of as mm-hmm. you said, a newspaper film, it, it fit into that mold. Um, I think it was just like, Oh no, that goes back in. Um, uh, and, and, and it also the absurdity of it too. I mean, it's sort of Melvin Belli was this sort of, comedically interesting lawyer right and and the fact that he hit on the floor you know because he was worried of a sniper getting him the fact (laughs) that he had had been in a star trek episode you know what i mean like all of that sort of lent itself to this sort of there's this the whole sequence works on like a level of it's sort of funny but then it's also really horrifying what this guy is saying and is going out over the airwaves and 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 kids are hearing before they get on school buses that have been threatened you know yeah. Uh, so that's, I think, why we ended up putting it back in the movie. But um, it was, uh, it was great. But I literally had forgotten about it until I was reading the script this morning. But, but, <laughs> but that? oh, that's right! I cut it for this track.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's it is interesting how it is a window into the circus of the media and the sort of paranoid frenzy that the Zodiac brought out in Americans.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it It's. It, um, it's um and it's Brian Cox doing it too, which was just Of course, yeah. Which is just another flavor. I think the thing that was fun about it too was sort of, you know, there's the newspaper movie going on, there's the police process movie going on, and then there's this little Brian Cox media thing going on that that, that hooks back later.
1: Throughout all this, you are continuing to keep viewers guessing. So just as you start to become sure that it must be this one suspect. You switch things up and suddenly you cast doubt on that suspect, and suspicion is cast onto someone else. It makes for just this incredibly like uh, yeah suspenseful experience as a viewer. Um, how did you go about crafting that and striking that balance of always keeping the viewers on tenterhooks
0: well i, I think st- structurally i I love the idea that well there are a couple different things. The first was I made a deal with myself really early that. With the killing, with the violent scenes that we were only going to show, scenes where there had been a surviving victim to describe it, right? Because everything else was really just guesswork. So um, David Faraday and Betty Lou Jensen, who were a couple killed on the Lovers Lane the previous December, we don't even show. We talk about them. We don't show it. That's why we open with Mike and Darlene. That's why we do um, the 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 lake next, Lake Barriessa, where where Brian Hartnell survived. And then with the Paul Stein killing, it was witnessed by the kids across the street. So we sort of used that to recreate it. So I made that rule really early. And that kind of sort of structurally, I was like, okay. And I also went, we're going to put all of that in the first act, if you would call it that, of this movie. And then, and this is something Fincher really liked, was then the violence falls out of the movie. Um, And he was sort of like, instead of hitting that sort of, you know, you know, instead sort of doing seven where it's like each one is more gruesome than the next and you get a new killing every 10 minutes and you're sort of feeding them these, these sort of violence pellets. He's like, we're going to start doing that and then stop it. You don't get it. <laughs> like, it's not that kind of movie. So he, he loves the, that kind of sort of perverse thing. But in terms of the, the guessing game of it, I, I, I love mysteries and I love sort of, there were so many different suspects and so many different kind of ways to go. And structurally, I really sort of went, it would be really interesting to the broad strokes, and this is what we do in the movie, is to introduce the Lee Allen idea, play that out, lead you to the dead end of that. Then introduce you to the next uh, 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 sort of suspect, lead you to the end of that, really rip Robert's life apart, dead end that, and then have that lowest moment, sort of end of the second act, with, with Linda, she says Lee's name, and it boomerangs you back to the first suspect. And I sort of went, that to me felt like, I mean, again, also, by the way, it was 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 Robert's experience, which was super helpful. But there was a lot of other people he was looking into, a lot of others. So he sort, I sort of went, this is the through line for... This seems like the right through line that will give, you know, the audience the same experience of detective work and and being on tenterhooks and and then being disappointed. Did
1: you always know that the basement sequence was going to be um, almost like a bubbling over of the tension that you've had rising and rising all the way up till now? I mean, it's so tense to read on the page, even in this early draft. And it's so, so, so tense to watch in the finished film. Um, Yeah, I'm curious to know uh, a little bit about the development of the sequence and whether or not you always had it in your back pocket as something to work towards as a final third kind of set piece that could act as almost like a crescendo for the film.
0: I don't know if they say always new, but it was always it was always in the script and it was always this incredibly scary because it's also the, the it's the moment you really feel the most that Robert's life could be in danger. So automatically it kind of rises to that level of, Oh shit, is our main character going to die? Right. And, and I, I just always sort of went, and it's so creepy and it's so, um, um, it just, it's very classically scary, like in a way that the rest of the movie isn't like the rest of the movie is, like we sort of talked about very matter of fact about the violence and the, you know, and 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 shocking in that way. And then this scene is like a thriller, like this is you are suddenly in a there are creaky floorboards, they're bare light bulbs, sounds coming from somewhere else in the house. It's like all, all of those kind of tools you're kind of playing around with there. So I always sort of wanted it to be a really just a, a just a scary, scary scene and Robert was like, I was terrified. Like, <laughs> so, like <laughs> it, was scary. it was scary in the book. It was scary when he told us about it. It was scary when I thought about it. It was scary when I wrote it. And it's scary in the movie. So it, it always, it's interesting. It, it, it again, it was this experience of reading this thing again. I was just like, oh, that's literally the scene in the movie. Like, I think the dialogue hasn't changed even. Like, it's, yeah. it's, it always just sort of lived there on its own and, and we didn't touch it, you know? This draft ends
1: differently to the film. Um, and we have a scene in which Graysmith comes to a conclusion that Zodiac is Alan. Now he lays out all the evidence that he's amassed pointing him towards this conclusion. Um, in this sequence, I think it's across almost like five pages of script in which, um, yeah, he's he's taking these federal agents, taking over the case through all of his findings. Um, the agents are stunned. Graysmith kind of lays it all out, then walks out, and they run after him begging him to stay and yeah expound on these theories that he has Graysmith declines he says, "I'm going to pick up my kids and then he almost like walks off into the sunset, which is a really nice um, payoff because throughout the film we've seen his home life crumbling and his his domestic priorities crumbling and there's a sequence um, yeah sort of a few pages before this in which He's been handed divorce papers and uh yeah, we, we we really do see the extent to which his obsession with the identity of the Zodiac killer, we see how much it has run riot over his personal life. So this is like a personal payoff. I'm curious to know like how important it was to you to have a sense of personal conclusion to the film for the lead character. Um, because of course um, narratively in terms of like this guy we've been chasing the entire time, there's no payoff there. There can't be because in real life, the Zodiac was never apprehended.
0: I mean, I think it's, it's interesting because it's, it's the, the, I'll take the sort of the Meryl slash Melanie piece of it first. Cause the, it's, it's um it is very melodramatic in this draft and, mm-hmm. and, and it's, it's pulled back in a lot of ways. There's still a scene where, where Chloe goes to see him uh, uh, and gives him the, or the divorce papers are there and he hasn't signed them. Um, And she kind of says the kids miss you, but it's, it's not as um, (laughs) overridden, I would say. And, uh, and, and, but it was, again, it was like such a learning process that you can do less with more. And it's sort of, you know, and so for me, that, you know, the intention is the same in the movie. It's just compacted and done more with the really good acting and good directing than it is sort of overwritten dialogue. And, and that applies to the, to the sort of the, um, the the final summation kind of, you know, if this were courtroom drama, this would be Graysmith's closing argument. And I wrote this whole thing out and it was really about making that case, right? Making the case of why he believes the thing he does and all of the crazy things that may or may not be coincidences. Uh, and a bunch of them didn't make the final movie because they felt like coincidences. And we I wanted to be smarter about it. And also so that what that scene became in the movie is him and Dave Toski sitting in a diner kind of working it all out. A lot of yeah. the, a lot of and it, and and in doing that, it became a much more interesting and dynamic scene because it's about these two characters with these different points of view and and the idea that you have to be able to prove it. Right. That you have to be like that you don't get to be dirty hairy. We don't get to pretend <laughs> that, you know, um, and I can talk about the dirty hairy stuff in a second too, if you want, because that's <laughs> fascinating. But um but it, it it in I knew sort of as a writer, we needed to have you needed to have a crescendo of some kind. You needed to have a final, here's why I think he did it, and listen to him and go, Oh, I believe he thinks he's right, and that's a good thing. And that's gonna help him get the closure. And so rather than be on the nose of, I'd love to help you with your investigation, but I got to go pick up my kids. It's more about him being able to say, you know, uh, Mark Ruffalo is saying, is it true that those places are 50 feet away And Gray Smith? Go. I've walked it. And you, you sort of get this moment of nobody knows this better than him. He's done so much. And it, it feels, you know, it feels like a, a piece of closure that way. So it's sort of one transmogrified, into the other. And I think a lot of that was just developing and developing and developing and trying to find the best way to get to that moment. Um, And sometimes the best way is not a 10 page monologue. (laughs) (laughs) And for any any aspiring writers out there, (laughs) we don't do the 10 page monologue. (laughs) James, you, you began this
1: conversation describing it as your dream project. What was it like the first time that you saw the finished film?
0: It was I mean, I remember I was uh, I saw like tiny pieces of it along the way. I went to the editing room a couple times with Fincher, which was great, just that he would have a writer into the editing room and and saw sort of different versions and pieces of it. I saw a version of the interrogation scene where um, he never showed you Arthur Lee Allen's face. He had cut John Carroll Lynch's face out of it entirely because, again, he was kind of playing with that idea of what if we don't see him until we get to the hardware store? We don't yeah, actually see yeah. him. Um, and it's sort of crazy to think about for me to think about that scene now without <laughs> Carol Lynch. <and> Davis, <laughs> but like, but I saw, I saw a version of that. Um, and then, uh, Fincher had like a, like a little screening on the Warner's lot. It was like, it, like one in the afternoon. And I think I saw it with a few of the executives and then, he had brought some friends. So randomly I was sitting behind Brad Pitt and Steven Soderbergh watching it for the first time. So it was like, it was already incredibly surreal because I was about to go see the new David Fincher movie that I'd written. And now they're fucking, you know, these, <laughs> these guys are here too. And I remember like the movie ended and the lights came up and everybody kind of went over to Fincher and did this sort of like, Oh man, I really liked it. And, you know, and they're talking and, and I, I just laughed. Like I was so kind of, stunned i guess like and not in a way where like i knew i really loved the movie i knew he d- i really liked it but it was i was almost just numb that it existed and so like i just kind of left and i got in my car and was driving i guess home and and my phone rang and the producer called me and he's like where are you and i was like well i'm i'm going home he's like what happened like David thinks you hated the movie. I'm like, no, I didn't hate the movie. I just, <laughs> I just, I didn't want to, I didn't want to bother anyone. He's like, well, he wanted to know what you thought of it. Like, but so it was this amazingly surreal, wonderful uh, uh, experience. But it's like, I, I don't even, you know, it's like, I don't even know if I saw it the first time I saw it because it was <laughs> an out of body kind of thing. Um yeah, it was, it was sort of crazy. And then we came out and did no money. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and then, and I'm sorry, sorry if this is going too long. We ended up going to the Cannes Film Festival after the movie had come out, which I don't think happens. It's a weird thing. Usually yeah. you premiere there and then, but, but I got to watch it at Cannes in competition on the, in the, you know, the big theater with the red carpet and all that stuff. And I, and, it, and I got a standing ovation and I remember turning to my wife and I went, if this is it for me, like if this is the highlight of my career or the last thing I do, I'm good. Like <laughs> I'm, I've done what I came to do. Uh, yeah. As you mentioned, like it didn't set the box office alight. And
1: of course it was kind of like unfairly overlooked that award season to a degree. But like, since then it really has become so well regarded. It's so widely adored today. How do you look back on the sort of legacy of the film now? Like, how have you seen this sort of reaction to it change
0: over the years? I mean, I just, it's, it's, it's it's wonderful. Like I had nothing but, you know, um, it's any, any, you know, I, I feel like anyone who gets to make a film at all is super lucky just because it's a tough, it's a really tough business and a tough thing to do. So to be able to make a film that people still talk about 15 years later or almost 15 years later is really crazy. And, and to do it with someone who with Fincher, just like, even then i was like holy shit it's david fincher um <laughs> was just a really incredible experience and so i love the fact that it's 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 stuck around and that people appreciate it i mean and i will say even then i think it wasn't i wasn't you know i wish more people had seen it in the theater sure i w- wasn't crushed by it just because i was like the fact that this exists at all to me is a little bit of a mer- felt like a little bit of a miracle even back then so not that I was sitting around, people will find it. And, you know, but I just went, I think we made a really good film. And for the people who had seen it, it's also the first time I'd ever gotten good reviews on anything. So that was an interesting experience as well. But like <laughs> people were talking about it, um, not in an awardsy way, but just in a way that, Hey, that was a really good movie. And so that was a wonderful, um, takeaway back then. And the fact it's just kind of stuck around has been super lovely and just, uh, you know, um, uh, I feel very blessed to 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 have been a part of it and the people shall talk that people want me to come on podcasts and talk about it low these many years <laughs> later
1: does it resonate for you differently at all today because i was one thing i was really surprised by when i went back to watch it was um yeah i don't know whether this is just me projecting my own anxieties as a journalist but it struck me re-watching that a lot of the dilemmas and tests of ethics that uh, face the newsroom in zodiac are similar to dilemmas and ethic tests that news media today have been facing and and failing in real life so for these guys, making the call on what to do with the Zodiac's letters, whether to print them or not, they're balancing two responsibilities. One, to make money and to sell papers, and two, to do right by the public and not endanger or give a platform to someone who's dangerous. So I feel like that is a test that America's media has failed with Trump, potentially, and Britain's
0: media. I see, no. Yeah, I mean... I'm I sorry finish your finish your thought. I didn't mean to. Well,
1: I was just going to ask if yeah, sort of. There's anything if if the film has changed in any way to watch today. With it, the, there are new things that leap out to you when you return to it.
0: Um, I don't. Uh, you know, I, I I think I think I always sort of see different things every time a little bit, just because you like you say you're, you're looking at it through the filter of of whatever's going on. Probably less for me than for just because I was involved in it. So it it. When I watch the film, I'm 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 watching the film, but I'm also remembering that day I was on set or that time I wrote the first draft. So it's like it has all these other things to it. I I you know the ba- memories and baggage that I personally bring to it just because I was involved in making it. The uh, the thing about the journalism stuff though is I, you know I I think all of that I think that's always relevant and that's always been relevant and and becomes more relevant and. What is sort of crazy talking about whether they're going to run these letters or not, and thinking back on it is like they had the whole day to decide, right? They yeah. got the letters in the morning and spent eight hours debating it and then had to, because it was going to the printer, set that that decision time now has crumpled to minutes. You know what I mean? Like, because they also knew the the other the other paper got the letter too. So in the age of, of digital journalism and all that stuff there you know you don't have eight hours to make those decisions and so more often than not you just you know print it and then you can always put a retraction you can always you know so and in my in in my sort of writing career I've done other things in this space i actually directed a movie uh I'll, I'll plug myself I directed a movie called Truth <laughs> years ago which is about uh Dan Rather and sixty minutes and yeah that's right. uh, and and a, and a, a news story sort of going wrong because it was maybe not properly sourced but the differentiation between, you know, being in the San Francisco Chronicle newsroom in 1969 and how much time, and being in television news in 2004 when that movie took place, and the difference between that time and today is the biggest difference is that is the, 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 the collapse of time and in, in which to make those kinds of decisions. But I think the ethical questions are always the same, and that's what's sort of fascinating.
1: One question I've always wondered: "Son of Sam" was around the same time as the Zodiac on the East Coast, right? Has there ever been the temptation to make a sort of spiritual sequel to Zodiac?
0: No, listen, I'd love to work with David. And David is wonderful. And, and when I went to direct my, my first film, I called him up and he sat down with And I said, what do I, you know, I did this with a, a lot of directors I've been lucky enough to work with, but I should have said, tell me everything you wish you'd known before you directed your first movie. And he was lovely and did. It was just great. And we've kept in touch over the years. And if there's something that popped up that would be the right thing, I would love to work yeah. Um uh you know, and it's it's so funny too, because if you sort of see him, you know, we t- I was just talking about stuff that attracts me that I go back to and sort of journalism, he you know went back to this sort of well with mind hunter in such a wonderful way. So it's sort of like I remember I remember reading about it, and I was like, oh, serial killers in the 70s. That's an interesting. <laughs> I was like, that's he's gonna do really well at that. Like, and he did, it's brilliant. So um, you know, son of Sam. I never found it as compelling, interestingly enough. Mm -hmm. And Spike Lee made a really interesting movie called Summer of Sam years back, which which was more about living in the city during that time and less about sort of the hunt for the serial killer. But I'm, you know, I, I've had a really, I'm really lucky to have had this sort of varied career where I've worked in different genres. And once I'm sort of done something, I'm less inclined to, you know what I mean. I and it was when yeah. Zodiac came out, and I got offered a ton of serial killer stuff, and I was like, it's the last thing I wanted. I just spent, you <laughs> know what I mean. Like, so it's like Son of Sam. Like, why would I, you know, not not in a bad way, just because it's sort of like I, you know, with everything I do, I try and pour everything I can into it. So I went off and 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 wrote Spider Man Four after it. It was like I'm, like, I'm gonna go do that. <laughs> You know yeah. what I mean? Now I'm just going to have a guy swinging around New York City with webs, like you know, <laughs> the best palette cleanser ever. So I tend to kind of you know zig and then zag. Um, but you know, look, never say never, and never you know, it's it's not like I would never work on another serial killer story, or as long as it was something interesting and and and, and didn't feel like it was repeating myself and, and something new. So yeah. So if David called me tomorrow and said, should we talk about doing a Son of Sam movie? I would take the call, (laughs) you know, uh, but yeah.
1: That zigging and zagging continues, James. Um, One project that I am aware you've been working on um, recently is the fifth Scream movie, which people are really excited for. I mean, you've got a ton of the original cast coming back. People are yeah, just really excited to see what you do with that. How much can you tell me about how that film's coming along, and and what you try to do with that screenplay,
0: reinvigorating that franchise? I can tell you nothing, really. I do But here's <laughs> the thing: I after a, after giving a long and probably boring answer of why I wouldn't do another serial killer movie, you remind me that I am currently doing another serial killer. Movie. <laughs> um, it just happens to be about Ghostface. Um, it's look, Here's what I: the only thing I will say is I I love that franchise so much, and it was one of my Just as Scream is one of my favorite movies. And so when the opportunity came, I ran towards it. And it was something that I'm producing with my partners, William Sherrick and Paul Neinstein. And it's our first movie with this new company, Project X. And we're so, I mean, it's, you know, Kevin Williamson, you know, I was like, we have to get Kevin involved from the beginning. And we're just doing it out of the place of love of those movies. And, And because of that, we've been able to get back this incredible sort of original. A group of cast members to return and uh it's just been wonderful so it's it's that is all i can say
1: <laughs> really exciting and is there anything else in the pipeline james that people should be looking forward to
0: um, I'm trying to think of, uh, uh, anything we're doing. That's the, that's sort of the first one we're doing right now. And then I'm, I'm writing murder mystery two for Netflix right now, which is super fun. Yeah. Um, I think, I think I just figured out a way to write mystery stories in many different genres. So, so <laughs> yes. we're going to do a mystery with Zodiac. We'll do a mystery with, um, with a uh, uh, murder mystery too. So, so Yeah.
1: Well, I cannot wait for all these projects. Um, James, this has been so much fun, man. Um, so glad we got to do this and so appreciative of all your time. Thanks for coming on Script Apart.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, James.
1: You've been listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camel Demek, with music from Stefan Binley-Taylor. Get in touch. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, or you can email us, thescriptapartpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.